Good afternoon and welcome to How IT Leaders Can Support Their Health Systems Precision Medicine Journey, a Health System CIO Media Inc. production. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO, and I'll be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments at any time in the Q&A box, and we will take them later in the program. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, we're going to go about 35, 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Dr. Alistair Erskine, SVP, Chief Digital Health Officer at Mass General Brigham, Beth Lindsay Wood, SVP and CIO at City of Hope, and Jackie Rice, VP and CIO at Frederick Health. Uh, so let's jump right in. Um, Alistair, we're going to start with you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Sure. So uh, Mass General Brigham is uh, the organization that includes uh, uh, Mass General Hospital, Brigham Women in Health, uh, Women's Hospital, uh, teaching hospitals for Harvard Medical School based in Boston, uh, Massachusetts. It's a $16 billion organization, does about $2 billion uh, in, in research every year, uh, full uh, featured uh, system, you know, uh, all kind of services, including a health plan. And I, my role as Chief Digital Health Officer is uh, responsible for some of the key platforms like the electronic health record, data and analytics, uh, ERP systems, and uh, a, a number of other uh, activities around digital strategy and digital transformation. Very good, thank you. Beth? Um, so I'm the uh, Senior VP and System CIO for City of Hope. Um, City of Hope is a designated cancer center based out of South, um, South California. However, um, we have recently acquired CTCA, Cancer Treatment Centers of America. So we're now in four states with multiple hospitals. Um, and again, a, a large research um, organization as well. We also have other parts of our organization actually that are relevant to this conversation, which is TGen, which is a genetic um, processing lab um, organization. Um, and we, we have GMP facilities, which are uh, manufacturing of biologics and cell therapies and chemical compounds. So several different parts of the organization um, that have come together as one. Very good. Thank you, Beth. Jackie. Hi, good, uh, good afternoon. Um, I'm the Vice President and um, Chief Information Officer here at Frederick Health. We're about 269 beds. We're in a acute um, healthcare institution. We're the only one in our county. We have uh, 24 locations, one of which is a um, cancer center that we that we've run for quite a while. We have 20 unique specialty areas. Um, we're a CHIME most wired level seven and a HIMS MRAM stage seven. So we're we're a community hospital, but we have a high aspirations. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Good to hear. All right. Um, let's start out. Alistair, we're going to start with you. How would you define precision medicine? So I think in the simplest way, uh, precision medicine is just using information about genes, the environment, and lifestyle to address uh, disease prevention, diagnosis, and treatment. I think that's kind of probably the, the, the most uh, crisp way to, to define it. But 
in a way, it kind of fits on a spectrum. Uh, and I would describe the spectrum as on one uh, extreme, you know, the one size fits all. And on the other extreme, there's an N equals one, uh, where, you know, with the, the entire treatment is really dependent uh, and, and based on one patient's uh, information. So I think, I think that as a result of that, you know, everything in between the spectrum, uh, sometimes precision medicine has, has been dominated by, uh, by genomics and genetic testing and so forth, but it does span uh, a significant broader uh, set of domains, which you probably get into. Right, right. So it's the idea that um, to what degree it's, it's directed toward the individual patient, and it could be anywhere along the spectrum. You could be talking about the whole patient population or drilling down at any degree and any level on that individual patient. That's right. And things right. that probably kicked it off were like the Human Genome Project uh, in the early 2000s, uh, you know, back then when it was hundreds of millions to actually uh, sequence a gene where now the price is more in the sort of $100 to $500 range, which is sort of incredible. Um, but yeah, definitely more than than, than, than genetics um, uh, as we think about, as you describe, populations and, and, and other ways of looking at it. Beth, anything you want to add to that definition? Well, I think our, you know, in in our case, it's very specific to cancer care. So I, I agree that um, precision medicine is usually labeled as um, a path with genomics to personalize treatments for patients, but it's really much broader. It's looking at other patient information, not just the patient in front of you and their genes and their cancer genes, but also looking at, uh, I'll call it people like me, where they're looking at other factors that will play in personal data about the patient, whether it's determinants of health or, you know, other information um, that would help with um, figuring out what the right plan of, of care is. And, you know, whether they go on a research trial or get current um, protocols that are already in place, all of those things factor into to that you know, I don't like to call it personalized care because it is pretty precise in terms of the kind of data that's used. But yeah, I would agree. Jackie, anything you want to add to, to the definition? Well, I, I agree um, with, with everything said. It really is providing that um, tailored treatment plan to a gene-informed approach. Um, and, and we're looking at it um, broad for pharmacogenetics and um even neutrogenetics, it has a broad spectrum here, but, but we think, I think, and my, my colleagues here think in, you know, in another 10 years, it's going to be like, they're going to look at us saying, how could you treat people without knowing their genetic information ahead of time? Because doctors don't do that without labs and imaging and those things. And I think the genetic information is going to be another big part of, um, what would be expected that you would look at to, to determine your treatment. Yeah, it's a good point, Jackie. And I, I always think that at any point in time, um, you, you know, that a certain period from now, people will look back at today and say, how could they do that? Right. So we know the best care we're delivering today, the most cutting edge in 50, hundred years, they're going to say, look at those monsters. How could they have done that? Yeah. So it's just something we have to live with and be prepared for. 
All right. Very good. Next question. Um, Beth, we're going to start with you. Talk about your health system's precision medicine journey, and please describe some of the successes, challenges, and lessons learned. So um, we we actually have a center for precision medicine that's you know been in place uh, for some time. The, it continues to grow and evolve, of course, as as that field does. But um, what has happened, I think, over the last five years or so, I wasn't here for all of those five years, but um, is the this became a major strategic initiative for the organization, and so the focus on precision medicine. Um, has been and and IT in in support of precision medicine has been a significant investment over the last um, five years or so, um, and so I would say that the there is a, a a center with with researchers and you know physicians a cadre of people both on the clinical side and the research side partnerships outside the organization. That have really come together to to evolve the program. Um, so great successes, I think. Again, it has helped to drive um, sort of this. You know, we do the genomic profiling, but you know, creating a um, technology suite that is very focused on giving people the information they need when they need it. Um, and so, big successes in the in the overall uh, program. I think that um, looking at, you know, in the in the area of drug discovery, some of those things, um, they have been pretty, pretty significant with, and again, a lot of it's the genetic profiling piece of this and the, or the DNA sequencing, but um, it's just using all that information together. We call it actually, as we look at this, our oncology learning platform, whether that's the actual technology or the entire, you know, from um, beginning to end with real world evidence, real world outcomes, and then looking at the, the research component of this. So, um, so you know, it is a, uh, we're pretty far along. We're not all the way there yet. There's plenty of opportunity to improve, but I think that integration of the clinical physicians caring for the patient and the research folks that are doing a lot of this discovery um, has has really come together as this being such a big initiative for the organization. So, uh, and obviously you, and obviously IT, right? Yes. Clinical Thank clinical you. research and IT. Um, and, I was and, being humble. Well, I know, but they, it, you have to be, and, I, and I'm guessing this is sort of a best practice, is anyone that wants to move down this road has to have IT at the table. Absolutely. Can't right? do it without us. Yeah. yeah. So we'll talk. I think we'll talk more about that um, in a little bit later. Yeah. Uh, but Jackie, let me get your thoughts on your precision medicine journey. Sure. Our started a couple of years ago with a um, over in our oncology area with uh, prevention and hereditary um, genetics. Um, but we decided we wanted to stand up something that was. Um, it, we didn't want it to be siloed. Um, we wanted a whole system-wide approach, so we formed a um, steering committee for that that includes pharmacy and IT and um, um, many, many people in there. And so currently, um, we have um, the hereditary genetic, genetics, we have pathology sits at the table, um, specific oncology trials, especially around um, 
um, uh, urinary um, um, trials, precision medicine, as far as um, making sure that we have the navigators to help both the, um, the patients and the providers. And we just started the pharmacogenetics um, this past year, which is involves a lot of primary care doctors and our behavioral health providers. Um, what we did um, back in June, we went live with an integration of the genetic testing into our EMR. Um, we're, we use Meditech, we're an independent hospital, trying to stay independent um, out here. Um, but Meditech was starting this um, integration um, journey and we really wanted to be out there um, with them because we had already had this precision medicine um, program. So we're bringing discrete um, results in from five of the, about half of the labs that w- we deal with that come into um, the EMR, the um, a lot of the genetic information for oncologists used to be in a 30 page document that would be scanned into this chart, this nice 30 page um, PDF that if you've ever hunted for scanned documents in your EMR, it's always fun for the providers. But then if you followed the, the oncologist, he would go and, and sometimes they would even print it out and highlight what they wanted because it is such, it, it is so much information. So having it discreetly in our system, um, within the lab system has brought us a long way. It also lets them do ordering for the um, for their um, genetic testing, which saves a lot of time because previously we had these genetic tests, but you'd have to go out to that specific test um, for, for that specific lab and put in the order out there. And that would take a lot of time to put in all the patient information. So we, we feel like we've made a big step forward in um, incorporating this into the EMR. If you want providers to be able to use this information, you have to put it in their workflow, especially primary care uh, providers who are, you know, for for the pharmacogenetics um, that we're doing and the behavioral health. They need it in their workflow. They have 13 to 15 minutes to see a patient. So we have to let them know upfront when they go in and look, this patient had genetic testing done. They can look under lab and they can be, um, the education that a lot of the primary care providers had, it's not that same in-depth education that maybe the oncologist had. So we need to provide, we we worked with the third party system, First data bank that is producing a weekly update for what those interactions are. That when a doctor orders the medication, they're given those interactions with the level of evidence um, that's out there, and it's changing every week. So you have to partner with somebody to be able to do that. Um, so that's kind of kind of where we are, success wise. Getting that into our system um, has been key. Um, IT has been a great collaborator with multiple departments to make this happen. The pharmacy, the lab, um, all of us together, um, again, a great collaboration. Some of the challenges are the education for providers when you say, okay, you're going to see some of this genetic information. Now in the, the 
the, you know, primary care providers are like, I can't, I can't spend that much time. So putting it right in their workflow um, and making sure that we're providing that education and then the education for patients, you know, educating patients is very important here. There are um, things that I've learned that um, like you're protected very well with your health insurance currently with your genetic information, but maybe not so much with your long-term care or life insurance and patients need to have an informed consent. Um, and it's it's different than just going for your lab work and where it's going to set. They they need to understand um, what's what's coming forward for them. You're talking about uh, some concerns that a long-term care or life insurance provider would find out the genetic information and perhaps not be so interested in them as a customer. Well, the protections are not there. Mm-hmm. Um, le- the legal protections are not there. Right. So they can, they could cancel those policies and the, the consumer would not be protected against that happening. Right. Right. So they got to catch up. The laws have, have to figure that out and catch up. Very interesting. Very good. All right, Alistair, um, your journey, what do you want to tell us about it? So, um, you know, I in, in agree with what's been said in Jackie's point about uh, being able to interface with these uh, lab companies now and receive uh, discrete data in the record beyond the PDF has been really, uh, really useful uh, because as she was describing decision support and other ways to be able to use that uh, data has been great. And, and we're doing something similar uh, helped by an electronic health record uh, vendor. And I suppose when it started really kind of still depends on what you call it and, and how do you define it? You know, I think in some ways it's not new. I mean, on the very low resolution uh, way of thinking about precision medicine is we divide the population to male, female, and other. And, you know, we wouldn't offer OBGYN care to men. Uh, so, you know, that's one way of thinking about it. You know, higher resolution, we do, you know, we do blood typing before we give uh, blood to a patient. That's a form of precision medicine. We don't, don't you know, we wouldn't want to go and give the wrong blood type that has bad consequences. And the reason that, that, uh, care teams uh, are obsessed about allergies for patients is because we're trying to tailor medications to things that they're not uh, allergic to. And and probably on a much higher resolution side is what Beth was talking about in terms of cancer treatment and targeting, you know, oncology mutations. And maybe even one step uh, further is the CAR-T type of precision medicine. You know, this is chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy. So what that means is that you know, the immune system is taken from a particular patient genetically modified and engineered to target a, a lymphoma cell and then grown in the lab and put back into the patient's body. It's probably the most extreme case of precision medicine where you're literally using components of that patient's, you know, makeup in order to be able to target a therapy against a, a lymphoma, uh, uh, you know, a cancer. So I think if you think about it in terms broadly, I think there's some other aspects that are not often talked about when it comes to precision medicine, but should be. And uh, what I mean by that uh, are things like uh, patient reported outcome measures. They're a really important part of how to tailor a therapy to a patient. So these are questions that a patient answers after they've had, for example, a surgical procedure about, or even before they've had a surgical procedure to say, you know, if they're gonna have a procedure on their leg, are they gonna try to be a belly dancer uh, you know, or, or are they going to, you know, uh, mostly, uh, you know, be sedentary, uh, sit at a desk, and that has an impact on whether they choose to go for that procedure. So that 
Patient-reported outcome measures are a way to make sure that there's an alignment between what the patient is looking for in terms of a procedure and what uh, and what procedures are performed on them. And that is kind of a way of adding more information about what's important, uh, be, again, beyond genes uh, and, and lifestyle. It's also kind of, you know, belief systems and, and, and what's important. So I think mm-hmm. problems could be considered another uh, uh, data point for relative precision medicine. So I think uh, Mass General Brigham is, has been in the business of precision medicine for a long time, and in earnest started, you know, in the early 2000s with the with the with genome project, and then since then uh, we have, you know, as many academic medical centers do, you know, centers for genomic and centers for pharmacogenomic, and 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 are doing a lot of that uh, um, lab, uh, you know, uh, research to be able to understand uh, kind of where to go next, the variant analysis, the bioinformatics that's necessary to be able to understand, you know, it's unlike a lab, like a basic metabolic panel that is, you know, the easy, it's either okay or it's not okay. It's so much less defined what is considered to be normal and abnormal. And that's why a lot of genetic counseling is required, you know, when you uh, when you offer uh, genetic testing for a patient and their families. And just like Jackie was saying too, in terms of, you have to educate the patient and you have to educate the providers or then test because it requires a, an enormous body of knowledge that's always changing um, uh, to, to, to know what to do uh, with it. Even to the point now where you're thinking about storing uh, genetic information, it's sometimes better to rerun the, uh, uh, you know, the assay uh, than to actually store the information because as you rerun the assay, uh, you find out about new variants that, are, that exist and that could have a potential impact on the patient. So I, I guess the journey has been uh, comprehensive. Uh, and I, I would say it, it, it's full of um, uh, successes in terms of, you know, being able to be more preventive than than than, than reacting and understand uh, and predicting the susceptibility of disease, um, being able to prescribe drugs better, uh, things that we can avoid prescribing drugs with with potential side effects if we have a better understanding of how a patient is metabolizing it, you know, what their P450 enzyme activity is doing in terms of how the liver metabolizes it. It it makes the the trial and error less uh, prone uh, to 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 hurting the patient and and also driving up cost of healthcare. Um, I think some of the challenges have been affordability. Uh, some of these therapies can run ten thousand dollars a month once you once you begin it. Uh, you know, in, in certain cases, and so. Obviously, insurance coverage becomes a big problem. Uh, you know, the, the the payers are going to want to see that there is a direct correlation between using this kind of a, a of a of a drug and and the benefit and avoidance of illness that comes along with it. And I think the genetic testing, um, you know, has a series of of um, of challenges. Uh, you know, as was discussed in terms of uh, legally, um, uh, as well as well as you know, being able to interpret it uh, properly. And I think that, you know, even privacy becomes an issue because you cannot de-anonymize, uh, you can't anonymize a chart that has somebody's gene uh, in it because it's so specific to an individual person. So that becomes another aspect that needs to be considered. So those those are some of the lessons learned and some of the challenges we run into. But overall, clearly see it, especially as the cost becomes more and more compelling uh, separate than the bioinformatics analysis of the actual gene sequence, um, uh, it's it's clearly something that is going to help not solve all problems in medicine, but definitely contribute to be able to tailor medicine. Excellent. Excellent stuff. All right. Um, Jackie, we're going to start with you on this. What technologies, including infrastructure, and I think, I think a, a lot of 
you know, the discussions we've had around cloud um, are foundational to precision medicine success. Uh, and how can a technical debt inhibit an organization's precision medicine journey? Well, it it is it is um, an endeavor, and an, sometimes it does have that expense. I think you can, as far as infrastructure, we've used our EMR, but you, all of those interfaces with the labs that we put in have been individual. Um, interfaces with them. They're not used to giving discrete data to EMRs. So that's a challenge we have had um, worked with our EHR vendor and um, the labs to make sure that that's standardized. If you're going to bring all of this information in from all of these different places, it's got to land with the same information in the same spots in your EMR. And that is always a challenge for um, all of these these different entities, but um, we've, we've worked through that. That's fine. I think um, talking about um, technical debt or how do you decide as an organization you're going to move forward with a precision medicine program for some of the bigger uh, places like uh, Mass General, I, I am sure that, you know, you have the funds for that for more of an independent hospital. This is a big big decision to move forward. We don't have a lot of um, of the background to, to do all the research and that kind of thing. So we look to partner with other places like NIH. John Hopkins is close to us on the different programs. So we're form, we are forming those, those partnerships, um, especially with NIH. They're very interested in what we're doing and, and they're kind of in our backyard. But as far as the debt and and how you're going to um, get past that, you know, budgets are hard right now. And if you look at ROI on, you know, precision medicine, genomics, it's hard to come up with those hard numbers for an ROI because most, a lot of what we're trying to do is um, utilize the genomics for disease prevention, um, treatment, management. So if somebody takes a test for breast cancer and they decide, okay, I'm going to have, you know, a double mastectomy, what is that saved? You know, how do you put dollars on that going down the road? Or if they find out um, this medication has helped me, is going to help me for behavioral health better um, and I've been, I've been in and out of the hospital for two years. I haven't, I haven't been on the right medication for my genes and, and what my metabolism is, but now we change them over and get them on the right medication. How are we going to measure that? How are we going to, um, you know, you can use the heart and mind stories, the wonderful stories that are out there. And I think you have to use those to get the funding for, for those of us who, who need to do that. But we're, we are struggling with that ROI question because it, it can be payers aren't reimbursing like we'd like to see them reimburse. And I think we all need to be out there trying to get that reimbursement done. And But we have to prove to the payers of if you let us do this, we can do this disease prevention and you're going to be better off as a payer. So all of those things come together as I think about what what is the debt and how do you get um, how do you get that buy-in to do these kinds of programs when you're looking at budget? And Jackie, that's 
you know, we talk about, you know, moving out of fee for service uh, that sort of hasn't gone as quickly, I think, as, as a lot of people thought it would with the pay for performance. So, uh, yeah, it's a much harder ROI in a fee for service world because you're going to, you're, you're essentially arguing that we're going to treat people more efficiently and better, and we're going to keep them out of the hospital. Well, that's not a big winning argument when you get paid for having them in the hospital. Yeah. So that's one of the conundrums there as it were. Um, Alistair, your thoughts? Yeah, no. Uh, ROI to whom? Uh, <laughs> right. Is always, yes. is always the, the issue. Somebody <laughs> wins, somebody, uh, you know, is on the opposite side of it. So I think there are at least four systems and two adjuvant systems that we have to think about. So the first, I would say the system of engagement, you know, the website analytics, the customer relationship management tools, the, the healthcare portals, um, you know, even digital health apps for specific disease conditions are things to think about. How do you engage the patient? Um, because that engagement is going to be pretty critical, especially if you're starting to talk about um, collecting uh, the data points for, pers- uh, for for precision medicine. The second is a system of records being talked about already, you know, electronic health record, uh, may, making sure we have a good understanding of the problems and the meds and then the notes and the studies that the patient has already received and the disease registries um, that exist to be able to pre-cohort patients um, to select from. A third is a, is a system of populations. So this would be the health insurance payer systems. Some more creepy uh, systems, especially in the healthcare space, uh, such as data brokers. Um, they have an enormous amount of data. You know, Amazon, Meta, and Google probably know more about me than I know about myself. Um, but those, again, in, in, in the pursuit of getting precise uh, more data that's uh, relevant becomes uh, becomes useful. And then the last uh, system, I would say, is a, is a system of analysis and prediction. So this is the data lakes, the enterprise data warehouse, um, the tools for automation, and in particular, the engines to create AI algorithms or deep machine learning from, from some of the, the data points that we have, especially on the unstructured side. I think those are the systems that are necessary. And then the the supporting adjuvant systems are interoperability between all of these systems. Uh, how does it you know how does the data flow across what data model uh, that can normalize it uh, across the different systems? Um, and then what security um, is required uh, and and access to make sure it, it's it, the the information the data is being provided to those who are trying to do good and 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 advance the mission versus the bad actors who want to get in and. And do something on towards because this precise information can be quite valuable in terms of being able to commit fraud if you know a lot about somebody. Um, so you want to make sure that it's bulletproof security in terms of what you're trying to. So those are the systems I think about when I think about what are the um, you know the, the infrastructure required in terms of technical debt, um, especially on the uh, interoperability side, trying to make sure that your organization has a uh, interface engine, an API engine, so the Fire-based API engines that can use uh, open source uh, ways of connecting systems to each other. Without that and, and, and going through a process of doing point-to-point interfaces, that becomes very complex and very expensive very quickly. So you'll accumulate a, uh, accumulate a lot of technical debt without the kind of infrastructure uh, of a better architecture. I think another better architecture is to work off of platforms instead of instead of um, you know individual uh, uh, software packages because those platforms already come pre-integrated with with themselves and then just trying to leverage that platform you know could be the electronic health record could be others uh, that also helps avoid the technical debt that would otherwise have to occur as you try to bolt on 
uh, functionality to the overall system to try to make it work. You mentioned security. Uh, should I be more concerned of someone getting my exact genome sequence rather than even more than my social security number and address and all that stuff? Well, I, I, I don't know. I think, you know, from what I know about how we protect the information, it's uh, it's uh, pretty bulletproof in terms of who ha who has access. I think it's a little harder to write down three uh, billion base pairs as opposed to seven digits. Um, so that may, and it's also a lot harder to enter that into whatever fraudulent system you would be trying to uh, use it again. So I think the applicability of the information is not there yet, but it's not without being cautious about how that could be applied in the future. You know, what was already mentioned about insurance and other things. There are some laws that protect, um, you know, the GINA laws that protect um, the use of genetic information uh, from, from you know, preventing people from being able to sort of uh, live their 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 normal lives, but um, I think there's still plenty to learn and discover uh, about how to use this information properly. Yeah, well, I have no doubt that uh, down the road uh, they'll be trading uh, genomic sequences on the dark web. I have no doubt about that. Uh, Beth, uh, your thoughts. So, um, you know, this is a, a core core competency for the work that we do. So we do have a lot of high performance computing that gets done with very large complex data sets um, that requires very uh, sophisticated hardware. Um, we kind of leverage the combination of on-premise big um, machines as well as the, as the uh, cloud. So that all of that is critical to keep up. It is not, uh, not an inexpensive endeavor. Um, to, to manage that, we do use TGen, our our um, our one of our uh, entities, to do a lot of high performance computing. But we do that in research as well. For us, the other area is we have a data lake um, called Poseidon that we partnered with a, a DNA sequencing organization to create um, that is specifically for precision medicine. So there's a lot of data in there from a lot of sources. And the idea is that, that bioinformaticists and physicians and others can get access to that data. It is not meant for, to be identifying a specific patient. It is more about, you know, the, the DNA sequencing and all the different things that, that are there. But it's, it's, again, more of that overall precision medicine component. Um, so we, you know, that is our repository for a lot of information. Um, overall for precision medicine. It, it can also be used for research in many other aspects, but but that is, again, it's a cloud-based solution um, and it you know it requires care and feeding as we continue to evolve, looking at new types of data that need to get in there. We do NLP, you know, we do ML, um, AI kinds of things against that. So, so that is a continuous uh, process is to continue to evolve um, that platform. We do use the EMR extensively. You know, we do CAR-T, we do BMT, we do a lot of that. And it's pretty important that there's no paper um, orders that are in the chart for clinical trials. And so it, there's a lot of maintenance, care and feeding of the EMR to make sure that all of that data is extracted appropriately to Alistair's point, but also um, that, that we have usable information um, in EMR to, to take care of the patients as well. 
Uh, PRO is a great example, uh, patient-reported outcomes, uh, big piece of research as well, and, and, and making sure that we take that information as part of the real-world evidence that helps to support how we treat patients going forward, not just that patient, but other patients. Um, the other thing we've done is we have developed our own tumor board software for precision medicine. Again, we have a lot of this data, so porting that in, it's it's in, uh, I would say, beta format right now. It's, it was, it's fairly new to us, but, but the idea is really targeting precision medicine tumor boards with, with a product that, that is very, you know, customized to what we need. Um, in terms of technical debt, I think overall for us, um, the there is a lot of investment in technology um, in general because of our research arm, but in it in, in and maintaining the EMR and maintaining some of these the the uh, high performance computing is all part of this. So. You know, the organization is committed to precision medicine. It is a core to our business. We have to have it. And so it's it's understood. And, and we even actually have a separate budget set aside for precision medicine so that any IT uh, resources or investments that need to be made are all part. We, we carve that out so that mm. there's a separate budget for that. We have a product leader, product management leader for precision medicine within IT to rally the troops to make sure that all of these different pieces are all pulled together in a cohesive fashion. So, um, you know, we, we again, we, we do, uh, we have research um, clinical trial software you've got to integrate with. There's all kinds of pieces. And, and again, the integration is, is another piece of this. It, it's, again, not a small endeavor. So it really, this is going to come from CEO down. In terms of is this some is this a direction we're moving in? And Jackie, it sounds like so you know you got Beth's organization and Alistair's organization is you know stratospheric, large, right, advanced, that kind of thing. Uh, but you're representing a lot of health systems out there, Jackie. Um, is this something your CEO sort of said we're we're going there, we're going in that direction? That seems like where it's got to come from. And then uh, the clinical side and IT side sit down and say, okay. This is where we're supposed to go. How are we going to go there together? Right. No, our CEO was very um, was very involved in this. He had actually had an, an experience with his um, parents um, with some pharmacogenetic testing um, that led him to believe this is really where we need to go. Mm-hmm. We did do a lot of education with the board. Um, this is definitely supported by our board when we talk about funding and how we're going to spend our money in a community hospital. It's a big deal. Um, and like I said, it's it's the ROI is hard to, to quantify. And this is not something that, you know, as a community hospital, it was seen that you have to do. We kind of believe that that it is here. I mean, we've even um, so much we believe it. We've had all of our employees are um, their testing is paid for because we believe it's going to make a difference in their health and that the health of our community. So all of our employees are paid through our we're self-insured through our insurance to have the genetic testing done. Um, so I do believe that you have to have, you have to win over if you're a smaller organization, you have to have that investment um, in people and resources to say, 
this is where we need to go um, and what we need to do for, so for a, our. And just Jackie, real quick, it's it's it, as a smaller health system, if, if we're going in this direction, you said there is still quite a bit of investment that we have to do, but also we cannot do this alone. We must partner. So it's it's both those elements. If you're a small to medium-sized health system, yes. it's going to be both those elements, correct? Yes, you're going to want those partnerships. Um, we have tumor boards, but we have them with NIH. So we have their expertise coming in with their, um, you know, all of their research that they've done, along with our doctors who are um, all participating. So we, we would not have the same kind of tumor board meetings without that kind of uh, background that's that's needed um, and research out there. Um, and the same thing with um, some of the prostate work we're doing that we're going to uh, go with um, Johns Hopkins. We wouldn't have that same ability or even the ability to join in some of the same clinical trials that we will with that partnership. So, yes, I think that is also key. All right. Very good. Beth and Alistair, let's talk a little bit about, and, and it always, I like to get into the specifics of it when people say we need to partner, it's a collaborative effort. To me, that always could picture two people looking at each other and nobody doing anything. So when we talk about IT and the clinical side need to work in lockstep and together, who's calling the meetings? Who's pushing it forward? Who's, who's, is it, you know, what is your role um, and how how much do you push? And, and again, who's leading? If they say that it's better to have what Napoleon said, it's better to have uh, uh, one good general, or two bad generals, or or something like that. Basically, you can't have more than one person in charge. So, um, Alistair, let's start with you. Yeah. So uh, uh, the cop out answer is it depends. Um, <laughs> so, you know who who is really pushing for it. So it depends. Also, you know. Is IT considered a cost center that takes orders from the organization and then you know fulfills that need? Or is IT a digital organization that's more PL run like a business that's part of the strategy or the organization and is completely intercalated and weaves into the strategy of the organization? So depending upon where the technology shop uh, lies along that spectrum. I think if it's more on the, the 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 true partner in the organization, it may be that the digital technology with its knowledge of the capabilities and possibilities is pushing uh, from from their side the the potential because the vendors will come and you know promote uh, the, the use whether it's the electronic health record or, or or lab partner or you know whatever it may be. So so there's exposure there, and then separately than that, of course, the research the the clinical. Uh, use cases, the 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 potential for net patient service revenue when it comes to people who seek this this kind of care, um, that may also come from the business, so to speak. So I think it really it does depend. And at the end of the day, um, you know, the, the some of the solutions are just not vended. They they you know a lot of this uh, is cutting edge digital frontier, and so you start talking about things like uh, next generation sequencing assays. That just haven't don't have anybody hasn't you know kind of put everything together and you've got to do mm -hmm. programming and you've got to do you know enterprise DevOps and 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 organize that and so forth and so that really does require partnership between the business and and uh, and the digital group to make that happen. So again, sorry for the it depends, no. but uh, but I think it depends. 
It's ex- and it's also it's extremely interesting, as you said. It ha- it depends on how IT sits in the organization and sort of what uh, what the nature of that department is. Um, but also roles. You're a physician. It's a lot easier for you to move push this forward. Um, a non-physician who's an IT leader, such as Beth, uh, may want to take more of a support role rather than a driving towards precision medicine role. Beth, I don't know if you're up there talking about assays and pushing things, right? You might say, hey, I want to support you brilliant people on what you want to do, but this is your journey, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I'm, not a, I don't, I'm not a doctor and I don't play one on TV, but I don't know. What do you think, Beth? No, I mean, what you say is true. I think for us, it, it is driven by, by doctors, but we are a partner in this. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we have, um, we have, I think, a good foothold in terms of how do we solution? How do we help drive? What is the next things that we need to work on? What kind of technologies do we need to be exploring? We've got to get out ahead of it a little bit, you know, and and we know what some of the problems are. We know structured reporting is a challenge, you know, so there are things like that that we have to be out there looking at so that when it's ready, I, I joked about, um, you know, untethered innovation. But in fact, we do need to look at some of these technologies and look at trying to apply those to see if those are solutions that would work. So I do think that we're a technology partner. I don't prescribe to be anything close to a physician, but I think we do partner well with mm-hmm. the precision medicine team and um, and also, you know, our clinical leadership. We, we do have a CMIO too that we partner with um, that is focused a lot on research and where we're trying to go. So, so I think it takes kind of a village a little bit. And I do feel like my responsibility is to protect the work that needs to be done for precision medicine because there's constant competition for resources and prioritization. We're building new hospitals, new cancer centers. We're integrating another you know, health system that we just acquired. There's so many other things that could distract us from doing some of this important work. And so it's my responsibility to make sure that we carve out what we need to advance this because our patients are counting on us to do that. So that is the messaging to the team and and across the organization as we look at, at prioritizing and governance and all those fun things is that this is, we have to protect this. Very interesting. Um... And it's interesting that you have a separate budget that certainly speaks to helping. To I don't know for how it. long, yeah. but <laughs> not everything is in that budget in terms of ongoing support and HPC types of things, but there is money set aside for some of the things we're trying to advance that I mentioned. All right. Very good. I want to get to our Ask a Co-Panelist question, and I want to start with Jackie. Jackie, you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists. I do have a, a question. Either one of them can take it. You know, one of the things that I um, think about with this, I, I do have an, a nursing background. And one of the, the challenges I see coming up, we're, we're so excited about getting our precision medicine programs stood up, but I worry about health equity. How are we going to make all of this ex- testing? And we say, oh, we can get that down to two or $300. But if the payers aren't paying it, how can we make it equitable? What are you guys doing to ensure that um, that we have some of that health equity? Because I'm, I'm thinking about that a lot. Alistair, you want to go first? 
Yeah, so so uh, my colleagues at Mass General Brigham have put forward in the past couple of years a United Against Racism uh, initiative uh, that is organization-wide, and it includes a number of things, but one of them is to address tequity, as the term uh, seems tequity. to be described. And, and tequity, the idea behind that is we cannot design technology that only works on a smartphone and assume that everybody that we manage and treat um, you know, is endowed with a smartphone. So every time we develop something for a smartphone, we're also thinking about what technology divide are we creating and then how to fill it. So it may be that the, you know, the alternative is an SMS texting strategy if you're going to have some sort of means to communicate with the patient on a smartphone. The same is true for treatment. Uh, obviously, a lot of our organizations uh Healthcare organizations in the U.S. are not for profit, which means that you know, 12 to 13 percent of all the care is is given back to the community, and and as such, um, uh, you know, you're you're offering um, a certain amount. It also depends upon how capitated the population is that you serve. How much on the value-based care spectrum have you traveled? Because um, just like you, Jackie, in terms of you know your organization, at least for the self-insured, has 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 chosen to do genetic testing. Uh, that obviously helps um, uh, get rid of some of the the, the bias and 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 the problems uh, that would accrue if you offer it only to one population and not the other. I guess the last thing I'd say is we need genetic information from all people um, to be able to make sure that this is is useful and accurate, as opposed to you know we need the diversity in the population to be able to make sure that we have the right information and can make the right sets of predictions and so excluding a particular population is is it doesn't do anybody any good beth um similar we you know again being um a cancer center we we test all of our patients that come in um genetic tests uh because they're the sickest of the sickest in many cases. And so it's important to us that that we do that upfront that, uh, so, you know, and offer genetic counseling and testing to family members as well. And again, part of that is around prevention, right? Um, and so we, we do that and we don't, uh, and it, you're right, it's expensive in some cases, it's not always covered by insurance, um, but it is, pivotal to our mission. So for us, it's really, you know, and again, a little bit of a one-off. We don't offer primary care. We don't offer other services. We're, we're strictly an oncology, well, and diabetes center. But, um, <laughs> and so, you know, the, those things right out of the gate are, are pretty important to, to where we're trying to, how we're going to help solve this problem with cancer. All right, I'm going to sneak one more in here. Uh, let's give it to Alistair. Do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? I have a question for Jackie. So I'm curious about this concept of the health plan, you know, uh, maybe I'm perseverating, but the health plan plan for, uh, for genetic testing. So the question is, what does the health plan do with that information? So, and then how does it help the employees? So- we do have, we, we started off with the, um, the pharmacogenomics information. We are a community hospital with most of our, um, most of our employees are going to our doctors. So this is going to be into the EMR for everybody to see. And so part of our uh, program with pharmacogenomics is you meet with a navigator who's a PharmD. She tells, she talks to you about the program. She does the swab. 
um, which is, is the testing. When it comes back, she meets with you for an hour. So she's de dedicating an hour with the employees to go over their, their information um, that came back and highlight um, any areas that, um, that she feels for that piece of it could, could be an issue. And then that information is in the EMR for, for their providers. So it's educating both of, it's, it's helping to educate our providers. We also offered this for all of our providers. So hmm. they could understand what is this, what is this thing you're doing? <laughs> what does it mean? And what information do you get? And what difference is it going to make to me? Well, you know, maybe you're not on the right statin or maybe you're, you know, for looking at your, your medication. So it, it's twofold in that it, we think it will help with that prevention. It also is a good education all the yeah. way around. Is it whole exome sequence, a whole genome sequence or SNPs? This is the, the, the pharmacogenetics that we're doing um, is just uh, the partial that affects um, okay. Got it. how you metabolize. I think it's um, 75% of how you metabolize your, um, your medications. Because I guess I've heard some people who will do, you know, whole exome sequencing and, and then compare it to a series of uh, high penetrance variants, you know, uh, 75 conditions that would yeah. show you, for example, that you are at risk of colon cancer or show you you're at risk of, you know, um, uh, you know, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or, uh, you know, breast cancer, so forth. And, and so by comparing it to a set of variants, that's kind of how they adjudicate uh, the value uh, from the whole sequence. So just so it was interesting to, to hear about how it's being used. Fantastic. Well, I, I think we're going to wrap it there. Wonderful, wonderful conversation, but that's about all we had time for today. It went very fast. Regarding continuing education, you could use the final slide in this deck uh, for your CEUs. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording of this event is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team, and you can go to our website to register for upcoming panels. With that, I want to thank our tremendous panel, Dr. Alistair Erskine, Beth Lindsay Wood, and Jackie Rice, and I want to thank you for attending. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.